Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. As Pastor said, my name is Stephen Arnold, and my wife Jenna sitting on the front row here. And we work for Chosen People Ministries. Uh, our ministry exists to uh, evangelize, disciple, serve, and pray for Jewish people all over the world. We are a ministry that was founded in 1894 by a rabbi who came to the U.S. from Hungary, who came to faith, and God gave him a heart to reach his own people, the Jewish people. And so we are over 125 years old, uh, reaching Jewish people. Uh, we're currently in 17 different countries reaching Jewish people, which is why Pastor mentioned uh, India, New Zealand, all these different places. Um, these are all places that we have ministries reaching out to Jewish people. Uh, the ministry that Jenna and I specifically will be doing will be starting a guest house in Brazil to reach out to Israelis who are traveling after their army service. And normally when I say that, it's, it's a mouthful, and I look out and people kind of have this puzzled look on their face, like, what are you talking about? And I understand the look because you're thinking, why are people from Israel <laughs> going to be in South America and you're going to reach them? Are there like three Israelis you're going to find somehow? Uh, well, let me tell you a story about an Israeli that I met in South America, and hopefully it'll help you put the pieces together. Um, I met an Israeli named Alon uh, traveling in Argentina. I was at the time working at a guest house for Israeli backpackers in Argentina. And Alon, just like every other Israeli, had served in the army after uh, finishing high school. And while he was in the army, he served with his best friend uh, in the same unit. And so during their army service, they decided to travel South America. And so they took out a map and they kind of figured out, you know, we'll start here and we'll go to this place and that place. And they kind of dreamed of all the adventures that they would want to have. And so all through their army service, they were looking forward to this time they would get to travel and have these experiences together. But there was one problem that occurred during their army service. Alon's best friend ended up dying in combat. So he finished his army service, and he had this whole list of plans and places they wanted to go, but no one to go with. And so he had a decision. He could either scrap that whole plan and not go to South America, or he could go anyways and still visit all of these places. And he chose that second option. And he decided to do it kind of in memory of his friend. So what he did was he took his shirt from the army service, his best friend's shirt, and everywhere he went that was very meaningful to him or he had a really good experience, he would take a picture with the shirt um, in front of wherever that was that he was visiting or whoever he had met in uh, these different places. So when I met him in Argentina, he really loved the, the hospitality we provided for him and really felt like we were a family to him. And he wanted to take a picture with us uh, with his best friend's shirt. And it was then that I realized that it wasn't just that he wanted to travel because he wanted to travel with his best friend, but he was on a spiritual journey as well. He was asking questions like, why did God let this happen? Why did God let my best friend die in the army? He was so young. He had his whole life ahead of him. Why would God let this happen? But it was at this ministry we were able to engage him in this conversation and point him to Jesus. That This world is broken, but we can be made right through Jesus. And I tell you this story because that story is the story of so many Israelis. Every Israeli serves in the army and they have certain experiences in their army services. A lot of times there's trauma that they're trying to work out. 
So then they travel to India or New Zealand, South America, with questions. Why does God allow missiles to fall into Israel from our enemies? Where was God during the Holocaust? Where is God, period? So there's a much-needed ministry to these Israelis. And to be honest, they're probably the most open that they'll ever be in their entire lives. Because for a lot of Jewish people, Jesus is like the last thing that you would ever consider believing. But now they're searching. So I've seen Israelis in India going to Hindu ashrams to meditate when, you know, that's so incredibly far from the God of the Old Testament, so incredibly far from the God of Israel. So we want to start a guest house ministry to meet them where they are, to ask them, you know, why is it that you're looking for, thing, for truth outside of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because the God of Israel has promised to send a redeemer, and he has done that who is Jesus. So that is our message. We want to provide more than just hot meals and a place to stay, but provide them with the information that Jesus is the Messiah, and they can know God through his death, burial, and resurrection. But in order to do that, we can't do it alone. So when you came in, uh, you may have seen these blue brochures on the back table. And if you didn't pick up one yet, I would encourage you to pick up one on your way out. If you open that up, there's more information about our ministry and specifically our story. You'll see our picture there with some information about us. If you open that up more, there's a white slip that you can fill out so that you can start receiving our prayer letters. You can put that in the offering plate at the end. Um, We need you to be praying for us. Um, This is a challenging ministry. We're currently chosen people is not in Brazil, so we're literally going to start a whole new venture in Brazil. And so we need a lot of prayer. So if you would, sign up to receive our prayer letters so you know how to pray for us. And then also on the back table, you'll find a prayer card with our photo. So you can put us on your desk or your mirror, your refrigerator, somewhere that you'll see it often to remember to pray for us often. Because I keep saying, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us, because I want you to pray for us. Please pray for us. Be a part of what we're doing. Be a part of this ministry. Um, Also, we can't go to Brazil and stay in Brazil without the finances to be able to do that. So on the slip as well, there is a way to sign up to uh, become a supporter monthly or one-time gift, however the Lord leads. Um, Right now, we are trying to reach that 100% of our monthly uh, support so that we can actually move to Brazil. Uh, Lord willing, in November, um, that's our goal as of now. Uh, But please be a part of our ministry in whatever way the Lord would have you be a part of our ministry. So what we are here to talk about today is Passover. And I want you to see Passover and the Lord's Supper through Jewish eyes. Specifically, I want you to see it through the eyes of one of my friends, that I, another Israeli that I met in South America, who's, who coincidentally, his name is also Alone, different people. But Alone, the second Alone, Uh, (laughs) I met also in Argentina, and we were able to share with him the gospel. We talked to him about Isaiah 53, and to be honest, he was very intrigued by this whole idea of Jesus being prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, It's not something that you would hear in Israel at all, and so it was new to him. And he also knew that we were going to church on Sunday, so he asked if he could go with us to church. And of course, we were overjoyed. We said, please come with us. Um, And for a Jewish person, that is a big ask to ask to come to church 
because for historical reasons that we can't fully talk about right now, um, that's the last place that Jewish people would think to go. Um, I mentioned before that you know, they would go meditate in an ashram, but Jesus is the last thing that they would ever consider. But here he is asking, can I come with you to church? And we were overjoyed to, to bring him with us. So he came to church that day, and it was the first time he had ever set foot in a church. First time he'd heard a sermon from the New Testament, uh, and the first time that he saw communion. And I remember walking with him afterwards and asking him what he thought, and he, he really liked the sermon. He thought it was interesting. But he was very intrigued specifically by communion. He asked, what was it they were doing with the bread and the cup? He said, it's very foreign to me. I have no idea what that was about. And I said, well, it's probably not as foreign to you as you might think, because that symbolism comes from Passover. And he asked me, well, what are you talking about? Because I celebrate Passover with my family every year, and I don't really see the connection. So what are you talking about? And I actually want us to see through his eyes how he made that connection today. So let's talk a bit about Passover, since that's something that he celebrates every year with his family. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. If you remember in Genesis chapter 12, it might be a little strange that I've asked you to turn to Genesis and we're going to talk about the Exodus. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 12, God has called Abraham out of Ur, told him to go to the land of Canaan. And God has told Abraham that he would bless Abraham, his descendants, and the entire world. And within that promise, God promised to give the land of Israel to the Jewish people. So then we come to Genesis chapter 15, and God is talking with Abraham, and Abraham is asking, how is it that I will know that my descendants will inherit this land? So starting in verse 13, it says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain their offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and after, afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So here God basically prophesies the story of the Exodus. There's a whole outline of basically the Exodus story. So let's fast forward a bit, and we'll see exactly how all of these things come to pass. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, one of the youngest being Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers. And I realize I've just gone warp speed through the end of Genesis, but it's through his bro- uh, Joseph being sold into slavery that God ends up bringing good out of evil. Because then Joseph is able to provide food for his family when there is a famine in the land of Canaan. And so the entirety of the Jewish people ends up moving to Egypt and living in the land of Goshen. And this is where the book of Genesis ends. But that is the first thing that God told Abraham would happen, that his descendants would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Then we come to the first part of uh, the book of Exodus. And it says there is a Pharaoh that arises many years after Joseph who doesn't remember who Joseph is. So he looks out over his kingdom and he sees this people who are different than the Egyptians. They're not like them. And he says, you know what? They're living among us, but if one of our enemies comes against us, 
they could side with our enemies, and then we would be defeated from the inside out. So he said, if I can find a way to control them, then they can not be a threat to me and my kingdom. So he decided to enslave the Jewish people and make them build his store cities in the land of Egypt. Well, that was the second thing that God told Abraham would happen to his descendants, that they would be slaves in a land that was not theirs. Well, the Jewish people began to cry out to God for deliverer, and God provided the deliverer who was Moses. And so Moses went before Pharaoh, and he said those words that we're all very familiar with, probably from watching The Prince of Egypt, where he says, let my people go. But I would encourage you to actually remember a little bit of a longer phrase, which is significant. Because what Moses said on behalf of God was, let my people go so that they may serve me. It's important that we see that freedom is not just given for the sake of freedom, but freedom is given with a purpose. And the purpose for the freedom of the Jewish people was for them to serve God. God was with them the whole way they were serving him. So they cried out to God for deliverer. Moses was sent. And Moses went before Pharaoh and said, if you do not let my people go, then plagues will be poured out upon the land of Egypt. So God sent 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. This is the third thing that we saw in Genesis 15, where it says that God will bring judgment upon that nation. So the first nine plagues were different than the last. The first nine only affected the Egyptians. They did not touch the Jewish people. But the tenth and final plague would affect everyone in the land of Egypt, unless, and that's an important word, unless they took the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorposts of their house and on the lintel. So this is what it says in Exodus 12, verses 5 through 7, and then verse 13. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So they took the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost of their home, and it's then that the death angel would pass over those homes. That's where we get the name of the feast, Passover, remembering that God's wrath passed over those homes. And so when you have the Passover meal, there's a lot of food on the table and a lot of things that represent different parts of the Passover, meal, Passover story. And one of the things you have to have is the lamb. It's an integral part of the story. But today, there's not a temple for Jewish people to go sacrifice the lamb and bring part of it home to have as part of the meal, like uh, the Torah says. So Jewish people today only have a bone on their, their table to remind them of that Passover lamb. Because unless you had this lamb, every firstborn male in the land of Egypt would die. It is this lamb that caused the wrath of God to pass over those homes. So God provided them a way to 
uh, escape the, the death that was coming. And it says in the next morning that when the Egyptians woke up, there was a cry in the land of Egypt that had never been heard before. Imagine mothers waking up to seeing their, their firstborn sons dead all over the country. There's a great wail that came out. So the Egyptians said to the Jewish people, get out of our land. We want nothing to do with you anymore. And so the Jewish people began to ask their neighbors for provisions to be able to leave and go into the desert. And so it says in the book of Exodus that they gave gold and silver and garments. This should sound familiar because that's what God told Abraham. It says that they would come out with great possessions. This is the fourth thing that we see in, in Genesis that comes to pass in Exodus. Also, Exodus says that it had been over 400 years since the Jewish people had been in Egypt. This is the fifth thing that we saw in Genesis 15. So that they would be slaves there for 400 years. That's all five things that God said would come to pass in the Exodus story. And I hope what you see there is that our God is a covenant-keeping God. When God says something will come to pass, it will come to pass. God is true to his word. God is true to his word to Israel, and God is true to his word to you personally. Now, part of this story, too, is that when we left Egypt, we left Egypt in such haste that we didn't have time for our dough to rise. So a big part of the feast is that we eat unleavened bread. I think when most people look at this, they wouldn't think bread. They'd think very large cracker. Um, but this is unleavened bread. And we eat this to remember that we left in such haste. And over time, Jewish people have developed a tradition with the unleavened bread that is very interesting. This in Hebrew is called the echad, which means one or unity. And inside of this piece, there are three pockets. And inside each of the pockets is a piece of the matzah. So there are three pieces of matzah inside this one element. And if you ask the rabbis why we have this piece, normally they'll give one of two explanations. One is that it represents uh, the priest, Levite, and the people of Israel. So to them, it represents the entirety of the Jewish people. Um, when I asked Alon, when uh, we were walking back from church, I asked him if they did this as a family, and he said that they did. And I asked him what he said his father said this represented. And he said it represented Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish people. And so far, it sounds nice. It fits. But I don't think it fully fits with what you do next with this piece. You take out the middle piece of the matzah, this piece is then broken in half. One half of it is then wrapped. So I have a special bag here that we use every year to, to wrap this piece. This piece is now called the afikoman, which means that which comes later. So this is hidden away, and later it's brought back into the meal. And when I asked alone what he thought about this, like why you break that middle piece, he said, honestly, that has never made sense to me. And so I had a different explanation for him because, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense that you'd break the piece representing Isaac or you'd break the piece representing the Levite. So I had a different explanation for him, but I'm actually going to leave you in suspense for a moment and we'll come back to this. 
Um, the, what it's called is the afikomen, which is actually a Greek word that's written in Hebrew. Um, so that kind of tells you the time period in which this tradition comes about, uh, when Greek was the common language. Uh, and you might want to remember that the New Testament was written in Greek, so this comes about the same time period. Uh, but we're going to come back to that later because it's that which comes later. And we'll come next to the cup. During the Passover meal, you drink from the cup four different times. And each of these times that you drink from the cup is to remember four statements that God makes in the book of Exodus, where God says that he would do something for the Jewish people. So there's four I will statements. This is what it says in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So for each of these I will statements, you drink from the cup, And each of those cups has a specific name and meaning to it. The cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, which is the third cup, which I want you to remember that one because we'll come back to that one too. The cup of deliverance or redemption. And the fourth one, the cup of praise. And the reason why this is important for us to, to talk about is because this was the exact meal that Jesus was having with his disciples when he had what we know of as the Last Supper. It was a Passover meal. So all of these things have some connection to Jesus, and that's what I want you to see and what I also talked with Alon about as we walked back from church that day. First of all, the bone. It's a reminder of that Passover lamb, the blood that was slain so that the wrath of God passed over those homes. It makes me think of scriptures like Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, being like a lamb. And I think that's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When I see the bone on the Passover table, I remember the, the lamb in Egypt, but I think about the lamb whose blood was applied to us. The lamb that I don't need another sacrifice because his sacrifice was good once and for all. No other sacrifice is needed. Now returning to the Echad. When I spoke with Alone and he was curious as to what I thought this represented, I, I was quick to explain I believe this represents God. And remember it's one but it has three, so it's three and one. Some of you are nodding your head. You see where I'm going with this. And so I began to explain to him, I, I think it represents God, the top piece of matzah representing God the Father. And I started to move to the second one, and he stopped me. And he said, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense, because then that middle piece would represent Jesus, and that breaking of the matzah represents his death. And I said, you've got it. Because everything about this piece of matzah represents Jesus. Being part of the three-in-one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
Breaking the matzah represents his death. Wrapping it and hiding it, his burial. But it's that which comes later. It comes back into the meal, representing the resurrection. And when it's brought back into the meal, it's usually brought back into the meal by telling the kids to go find it. And whoever goes and finds it will receive a reward. And this reward could be anything from you know, a piece of candy, a quarter, if they're really generous, like $20. But there is a reward for whoever finds it. And how much better of a reward for those of us who find and believe in Jesus? It is the best reward. And I believe it was this piece that Jesus would have taken with his disciples and he would have said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In every single way that I can think of, this piece of matzah represents Jesus. Death, burial, and resurrection. The second person of the Godhead. But also think about the matzah itself. It is unleavened. And what does leaven often represent in the Bible? Sin. When we read about the Passover lamb earlier, you might remember that it had to be spotless. Nothing could be wrong with it. So to Jesus, if he had done anything wrong in his entire life, he, did not quali- he would not have qualified to be our sacrifice. But because he was sinless, he could take our sins on himself. So in every way possible, this matzah represents Jesus. Now, in the, in the Passover meal, as soon as you partake of the matzah, you come to the third cup. Is that sounding familiar? Jesus broke the bread with his disciples, and then he took the cup. And this third cup is the cup of redemption. And that I will statement that is made with this cup is where God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. If you remember Isaiah 53, how does it start off? It says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it goes on to prophesy about the Messiah. The Messiah who was to come is the arm of God reaching down to man, providing a way, providing redemption. So then Jesus holds this cup, representing that arm of the Lord, this cup of redemption. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And there's so many parts of that are, that are significant. The arm of the Lord, but also the fact that he says the new covenant. I imagine when he said these words, new covenant, a light bulb would have gone off for the disciples. Because as I studied the scriptures with Jesus and they read the prophets, they would probably have remembered the prophecy by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it says, starting in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Remember, this whole meal symbolizes that coming out of Egypt. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
So as Jesus holds this cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, he connects himself specifically with Jeremiah 31. And the thing about Jeremiah 31 is that he doesn't fully explain how this covenant would be given, how sin would be forgiven. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But Jeremiah didn't fully explain what sacrifice was needed for this covenant. But when Jesus held this cup, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He paints the picture fuller from what Jeremiah says. It is through his blood that this new covenant is given. It is through his blood that the sin can be completely wiped away. You know, I, I spoke with Alon, uh, the Israeli that I met in Argentina, about Jeremiah 31, and he became so preoccupied with it. He couldn't get it out of his mind, this prophecy that was to come of a new covenant, and that Jesus had said, this is the new covenant in my blood. We spoke about it one day, and the next day I came to him, and I, I started asking him about something that had nothing to do with Scripture. I, I think it was about camping or something. And he said, I can't answer your questions right now. I, I'm too busy. i got to go read Jeremiah 31 again. It had become so important to him, and he saw such deep meaning that Jesus would be this sacrifice. So I hope that next time as you partake of communion, you, you see it through a different lens. You see that bread as the body of Jesus, broken, buried, resurrected, sinless, part of the Godhead, the second person. And that when you take the cup, you remember that this is the new covenant promised by Jeremiah that would completely wipe away sin. And it's only through his death, burial, and resurrection, his shed blood, that this covenant could be made. So how do we put this into practice in our lives this week? Well, first of all, if you have not given your life to the Lord, today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day where you know him fully because of his death, burial, and resurrection, and your sins can be wiped away. But I imagine for a lot of you, you do believe in Jesus as your Messiah. You have been made new through his death, burial, and resurrection. So how do we put this into practice for us? Well, this whole story has to do with freedom. The Exodus story is God freeing the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. And so this freedom in the new covenant is a freedom from sin. The whole story is about freedom. And when I think about that, I think about Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through, through 19. It says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. For those of us who believe in Jesus, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. And he is a much better master. But often, even though the reality is we are servants of the living God, 
we often choose to live as if that's not true. We often choose to go towards that sin that is so, so enticing to us. It feels good in the time. But we serve the living God. So what are we doing with our freedom? Because freedom is given for a purpose. And that purpose is to serve the one who has freed us, to serve God. We can, serve to ser- we can choose to serve sin. We can choose to serve ourselves, which is saying the same thing. Or we can choose to serve God. This week, I would encourage you to read through Romans 6 through 8 that really kind of talks about this more. And I hope that you read it introspectively, examining your own life. Where have you not fully given over to God? What parts of your life are you acting as if you're still enslaved to sin? What parts do you need to give over to the Lord, to be obedient to God? Because he is the one who has freed us. Let's pray. Avinu Malkenu, our Father and our King, God, I thank you for the freedom that we have in you. God, I thank you that it is a freedom with a purpose, not so we can live for our own desires, but God, that we can live for you. God, that you are holy and righteous and good. God, I pray that you would show us the parts of our own lives that we need to surrender to you. God, may we put the sin behind us and lay aside the weight that entangles us in this life. God, may we serve you with full intent. God, you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of a life lived for you. And God, I pray that we glorify you in all that we do and say. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.